Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 272 of Forgotten Classics, where we begin a new book, Heidi's Alp by Christina Hardiment. First, though, I have found several new podcasts to tell you about, and mm, choosing has been difficult, but considering that Heidi's Alp is all about tracking down where fairy tales began, well, that's not what it's all about, but that's a lot of it. (laughs) I am going to go with one I just discovered called 21st Century Mythologies. It's a BBC series, but you can get it on iTunes. It is 12 minutes long, and it is following a tradition that evidently was done in the 1950s and 60s by another journalist who looked at all the things around of the time, pop culture things, and said, how do these fit in? What trail do they follow back to mythology? Where might they take us? And this is no different For example, the first episode talks about the Apple logo. What are the myths that are out there right now of where that logo came from? What are the realities? And in a twist that I just really love, as we look at the mythologies of the wrong stories of where that logo came from, the commenter takes us back into real mythology or real tales that are ancient to our culture. So it's really rich for only being 12 minutes long. It has not been going for very long. And as is the way with the BBC, I can't tell if this will be limited or if it will keep going for a while. And I hope it keeps going because I feel like there's rich fodder out there for it. But they delve into such things as screw top wine bottles, the Kardashians, the selfie, (laughs) you know, all those things, plus a very good listen. Definitely give it a try. Now, let's talk about this book, which it has taken me for a while to get to. And I'm going to say the reason it's taken me quite this long is because I had the first chapter recorded and accidentally erased it. (sighs) That's a very annoying thing to do. I even had it mostly edited. Very, very annoying. So I'm being a lot more careful with what little boxes I push these days. And I have this one done. And I had forgotten, speaking about rich, how rich this book is, the author is telling us the story, briefly, as I've mentioned before, of leaving in a yellow camper, Well, some might say a small RV, but you know, whatever you want to say, it's all in one thing to go around Europe with their kids for a few months, tracking down where classic fairy tales came from and, you know, checking out other things on the way. This book was published in 1987 in Great Britain and 1988 in the US of A. So, To me, that makes it sound really current compared to some of the books we've read. But really what it is, is a wonderfully entertaining story. And as I said, it's rich because this author has got all kinds of excerpts from other books, looking into where these fairy tales came from, looking into in their own lives, what drives them 
to care about these stories. It's really great. And having been to Europe in the 1980s with my husband when we were first married and then back again with the kids when they were about eight and 10 or something like that, this brings back a lot of memories just of what it's like for a family to navigate on its own like that. It definitely brings you into a closer functioning unit. You get to know each other a lot better than you would have thought. So it's a lot of fun that way too. Heidi's Alp being a book that is going to a lot of European spots. I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce some things. I have been looking things up like crazy. Thank goodness for the internet and done my best. So I really apologize for getting things wrong. There were a few things like one of the Dutch words. Oh my gosh, it was everywhere because it's an amusement park I never heard of. But was there something to tell me how to pronounce it? No, there was not. So there are a few things since this is British that have um, meaning we might not get from it being American or American listeners anyway. Hire means to rent something. A motor caravan would be like an RV, obviously, or a camper. I'll try to alert you as I come across them, but just kind of take it in stride. If you've read many British books, these will all be familiar. And if not, the context makes most of it clear. Now that's enough of me. Dive in and I'll meet you on the other side. Heidi's Alp, One Family's Search for Storybook Europe by Christina Hardiment. This book is under copyright and is read with the author's permission. To Jane, with our love and thanks. In this time, if the myths outworn, the legend broken, useless even within the child's story, since he sees well, they now bring light no longer into our eyes, and if our past retreats and blows away like dust along the desert, not leading to our moment now at all, settling us in this place and saying, Here in you I shall continue. Then what kind of lives have we? Can we make myths revive by breathing on them? Is there any taper that will return the glitter to our eyes? We have retreated inward to our minds too much, have made rooms there with all doors closed, all windows shuttered. There we sit and mope the myth away, set by the lovely legends. Hardly we hear the children shout outside. We only know a way to love ourselves, have lost the power that made us lose ourselves. Oh, let the wind outside blow in again, and the dust come and all the children's voices. Let anything that is not us return. Myths are the memories we have rejected, and legends need the freedom of our minds. Elizabeth Jennings 1. The Life Adventurous When the virus of restlessness begins to take possession of a wayward man, and the road away from here seems broad and straight and sweet, the victim must first find in himself a good and sufficient reason for going. This, to the practical bum, is not difficult. John Steinbeck, Travels with Charlie, 1961 Toad began it. 
Curled up by a January fire, I was reading The Wind in the Willows to Ellie and Susie, our younger daughters. Hang spring cleaning, cries the mole, flinging away the shackles of routine for a day's fun on the river with Ratty. Mole is a nice enough animal, prepared to sacrifice his cozy domesticity for a spree once in a while, but how he revels in his return to teacup and footstool. Toad is quite different. For all his dishonesty, his unreliability, his incorrigible egotism, he is a true visionary, a dream peddler, seductive purveyor of the life adventurous. There you are, cried the toad, straddling and expanding himself. There's real life for you embodied in that little cart. The open road, the dusty highway, the heath, the common, the hedgerows, the rolling downs, camps, villages, towns, cities, here today, up and off to somewhere else tomorrow. Travel, change, interest, excitement, the whole world before you and a horizon that's always changing. Ellie stared into the red cave at the heart of the fire. I wish we could go for adventures, she said. But we've got school, haven't we? Susie countered with a resignation that made me feel suddenly rebellious. Four daughters aged between five and twelve. Eighteen years of lunchboxes and swimming money, lost textbooks and missed music lessons. What had happened to my old dreams of exploring Trebizond like Rose Macaulay, excavating in Anatolia like Freya Stark, daring the desert in memory of Lady Hester Stanhope, was a family a ball and chain for life? Later that evening, I picked up a book I'd found in the London library when looking for evidence that fathers were more involved with their families than the remote Victorians of myth. John Ross Brown's An American Family in Germany was published in 1867. The very first page drew me into a world full of revolutionary possibilities. Now, John cries the redoubtable Mrs. Ross Brown. The dream of my life is to be realized. You are rich and must take us all to Europe. The children must be civilized. It will never do to have them grow up like little savages. Let us start at once for Germany. There was breadth of vision, confidence, decisiveness. What lackeys we modern parents are in comparison, I reflected thinking of fathers chauffeuring their children to school, mothers waiting outside the classrooms, too timid to take an initiative we push and prod our children through the conventional hurdles of childhood. School days and homework tidy away children from adult lives. They cage up parents and reduce them to garage attendants. When the children trail home at the death of another day, we refuel, wash, and service them, then post them off again in the morning. I looked across at Tom, deep in the crossword, and a picture of content now that the hurly-burly of family supper was over. He was not by nature a traveling man, but a small voyage might tempt him. Thuds and screams came from downstairs. In our house, a game of Monopoly leads inexorably to a major war. Civilization we certainly needed, although it was possible that the children were already irredeemably savage. Gradually, the idea surfaced. Why not steal a summer? 
make a journey part toad-like self-indulgent adventure and part education in the old idiom of the grand tour. Take the children right out of school for May and June, the loveliest months, and amble unhurried around Europe well ahead of the August crowds. Marshall would have approved of that, said Tom. Aestate pueri si valent satis discount. He'd had a classical education. I hadn't. What does that mean? Children don't need to learn anything in summer if they're healthy. I think that's right, particularly if they're as young as ours are. We were not yet in the iron grip of examination syllabuses. I had finished one major project and was shilly-shallying about what to do next. But what sort of approach would appeal to the children? Every parent knows the miseries of trailing round museums and art galleries with unwilling children in tow. No one gets far up the mountain peak with an opinionated five-year-old. Daisy wandered in with a book in her hand. Heidi by Joanna Spirey. Enjoying it? I asked her. Yes, it's brilliant. I wish we lived on a mountain and had goats. Is there really a place called Mayenfeld? Everything fell into place. The year before, we had spent half-terms and holidays exploring the places that inspired Arthur Ransom's stories about the Lake District, the Norfolk Broads, and the Essex Backwaters. We could spend this summer on a similar but more ambitious quest, in search of the roots of the stories that linked our children with children all over Europe in a common imaginative heritage. We could hunt trolls in the Norwegian mountains, look for witches and wolves in the German forests, In Switzerland, we'd rout out Heidi and William Tell. In Italy, track down Pinocchio and Punch and Judy. What sort of a man could write a book like Strulpeter? What was the true significance of Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty? Where did Don Quixote tilt at windmills? Was there a jackdaw at Reims, a hunchback in Notre Dame? By now, Tilly had given up the unequal struggle of explaining property development to her born revolutionary younger sisters and had joined us with a cup of cocoa. The more we talked about it, the better the plan seemed. Let's go to Greece, said Tilly. We could run a real marathon. And France, said Daisy. Find a dog Tignon and the musket hounds. But how can we miss school for a whole term, asked Tilly. I'll get behind in French. You can catch up in France, stupid, said Daisy. Tilly shook her head. I don't think they'll let us go. We had emphasized the legal requirement of school so much in their first unwilling days that this sudden scheme of wholesale truancy seemed criminally irresponsible. When would we leave? How will we travel? Will Daddy come too? Too many questions to answer in an evening. They went off to bed with their heads spinning with queries, plus a touching faith that it would really happen. In the event, it was their faith which made it happen, letting them in on a fantasy that combined parental fulfillment with personal escape turned a pipe dream into reality. We were badgered into admitting that really very little stood in the way of us going. A week or so later, Tom and I found ourselves in a headmistress's study. She listened thoughtfully as we sat on the edge of armchairs and outlined the plan. May and June away. Literary and cultural associations. My brief experience as a teacher. 
Tom's prowess in the new maths, project work galore, and regular postcards. I paused for breath. She considered for a few minutes. Then judgment fell. Wonderful idea. We couldn't possibly offer them anything so educational. They're very lucky children. Feeling like Cinderella granted attendance at the ball by her fairy godmother, I began to think about a glass coach. The Ross Browns favored a carriage and six, accompanied by two servants and a red Indian slave stopping in hotels or hiring a residence for longer halts. But unlike them, we had not miraculously become rich. We couldn't afford that kind of style. One day I glanced out of the window and saw our Dutch neighbor's sleek white doormobile with new eyes. Until then, it had just been a nuisance when I made my early morning three-point turn. Suddenly, it glowed with promise. Camper vans are not traditionally romantic vehicles. Around the world in a balloon? Yes. Through Afghanistan on a bicycle? Wonderful. Down the Mississippi in a canoe? Very Huckleberry Finn. Even a train takes on a daring aspect if it terminates at a Siberian salt mine or a northwest frontier. By contrast, camper vans smack of caution, a traveling cottage approach to the unknown. Insulated from adventure, their inmates warm up their own brand baked beans and sip tea of a proven quality from a familiar mug. But we rapidly realized that for a vagrant family, a motor caravan would have unique advantages. Hotels are too expensive. Hostels, too repeatedly unfamiliar for children's peace of mind. Tents have to be pitched just when you least feel like it, and are always wet just when you want to take them down. The old horse-drawn caravans had the same advantage as camper vans, but now they are towed by cars, and bored children breathe down your neck as you drive. A camper van is as snug as a snail's shell. It has a car's mobility and a caravan's conveniences. It's too small, said Tom, looking out of the window beside me and reading my mind. Chris and Rhea had only three children and used the van for brief visits to friends in Holland rather than long holidays. What about a bigger one? Despite a light drizzle, the next Saturday found us at a nearby motor caravan showroom. The children's eyes lit up at the fleet of exotic vehicles. The salesman paled at the prospect of six sets of wet feet invading his immaculate auto-sleepers, motorhomes, and Winnebagos. But he was flattered by the enthusiasm of our inspection. The more we saw, the more we wanted. This one's got a shower and a TV. Look, bedside lights that really work. Four-way stereo. The girls clambered into bunks, experimented with roof extensions, explored fridges and port fiddled with switches and knobs. As we retreated from the leopard-look carpeted bathroom of the largest recreational vehicle, I wondered if it had been wise to bring them. There was a furious argument on the way home over the respective merits of the racy Renault auto-sleeper, a mere 8,000 pounds, only slightly second-hand, and the fantastical Enchanted Castle, a crenellated jumbo that only a good-sized ogre could have driven. All were far more expensive than we had imagined. Even to hire a van big enough for a family of six would cost between 200 and 300 pounds a week, reasonable enough for a fortnight's holiday, but ruinous for over two months. 
In the end, it was Rhea and Chris who solved everything. They would have lent us their doormobile, but they knew from their experiences flitting to and from Holland that it would be too cramped for long-distance traveling with six of us. The answer, they insisted, was to hire a bigger van privately. Moreover, they had friends with a van that might suit us very well, and who were happy to rent it at an attractive, low, off-peak price. When Bruce and Classine rolled up in Bertha, it was not love at first sight. Her official description was a Bedford Supreme motorhome with a 2.3-liter petrol engine, a 20-gallon capacity water tank, a calor-gas-fueled water heater and oven, and an electric fridge. She was distinctly pumpkin-like. Her clumsy lines and insipid yellowness all offended against our earlier visions of sweeping round Europe in a streamlined rainbow-striped auto-sleeper. But the more we got to know her, the more we respected and loved her. I discovered quite by chance that she had a romantic ancestry all her own, that yellow vehicles have traditionally carried their owners to adventures. The irascible and asthmatic Colonel Burton swept his whole family off to Italy one spring in 1830. His wife, poor thing, who only moderately enjoyed a migratory existence, was aghast. But the young people, all three rovers at heart, were wild with delight on hearing of this exciting prospect. It seemed almost too good to be true when the yellow traveling chariot, a luxury indispensable to the well-to-do folk of that period, was taken out of its coach house and furbished up for the journey. This equipage contained all the funny old-fashioned receptacles then in vogue, some of whose very names are unfamiliar, imperial, boot, sword case, and plate chest, a sort of miniature house on wheels. The Burtons swept down to Italy full of pomposities and idiosyncratic judgments, leaving a trail of exhausted tutors and demoralized servants in their wake. Perhaps it was that summer running wild which set young Richard on his course for his erratically brilliant career as explorer and poet, translator of The Thousand and One Nights. Toad's cart, too, was yellow, canary-colored, picked out in green and with red wheels the finest of its sort that was ever built. He invited Mole in to look at the arrangements. The Mole was tremendously interested and excited, and followed him eagerly up the steps and into the interior of the caravan. The Rat only snorted and thrust his hands deep into his pockets, remaining where he was. It was indeed very compact and comfortable. Little sleeping bunks, a little table that folded up against the wall, a cooking stove, lockers, bookshelves, a bird cage with a bird in it, and pots, pans, jugs, and kettles of every size and variety. We followed our new friends inside Bertha. Everything was a little smaller than life, trimly wood-veneered, and neatly organized. Her apple-green curtains and dark-green seats were a relief after the explosive patterns that had dazzled us in the motor showroom. Bruce juggled dexterously with poles and planks, and the central table at the back slid between the two bench seats to make a double bed. The berth, curtained off above the cab, would sleep the three younger girls sardine-wise, and Tilly could have a mattress across the cab itself. I inspected the tiny kitchen units, the walk-in shower with its pint-sized hand basin, and tuck-away porta-potty, the compact drawers and lockers. The girls pushed a wham-tape into the cassette player and snuggled up above the cab. 
Why not borrow her for a weekend and see how you get on? Clessine suggested. A few weeks later, we did just that, setting off to the Malvern Hills for a test drive come feasibility study. Successfully negotiating the hairpins of the Long Mind did not exactly guarantee future performance in the Alps, but it was reassuring to find the engine more than capable of hauling what seemed a massive bulk up the narrow lanes. The sleeping arrangements worked out well, and during the day the girls played cards happily at the table to the companionable beat of their favorite music. No one was sick. We found that the bulwarks of the shower, wardrobe, and kitchen reduced the volume of both the children and the music remarkably well. In fact, Tom and I had our first uninterrupted conversation for several weeks. The greatest relief was the ease of the driving. I had imagined that the actual steering and braking would be much heavier work than an ordinary car, and I dreaded trailing along at a snail's pace. My point of view changed radically once I was sitting high and proud behind Bertha's wheel, and I found myself sweeping round the broad bends of the A44 with a wages of fear joie de vivre. There was a pioneering thrill in leading the long, illuminated caterpillar of cars behind us, and it was comforting to reflect that we were saving both their fuel and their skins by maintaining a steady 55 mile per hour. No doubt the other drivers were relaxing and admiring Bertha's finer points through her broad rear window. When we returned to Oxford to clinch the van hire, Bruce showed us how to change the calor gas bottles, fill the water tank, drain the shower waste, check the oil, switch from batteries to mains. Head spinning a little, I listened to Classine suggesting food standbys, cooking shortcuts, useful wrinkles on bed making, and taking a shower. We have even had a windsurfer strapped on the roof, she suggested encouragingly, seeing my board beside the porch. I looked hopefully at Tom. Never at the best of times a mariner, he had a determinedly far away look in his eye. It would probably make better sense to hire a board when I wanted a sail, rather than risking its theft or damage. I remembered Ratty and Colonel Burton's wife, and reminded myself that I was lucky he was coming at all. Not that he could spare more than four weeks away from his printing presses. I would need an aide-de-camp for the first two or three weeks of our journey. And the natural choice was Jane Jones, who had braved the February blizzards on the Norfolk Broads with us when we were looking for the haunts of Arthur Ransom's Coot Club. Jane was a primary school teacher by training, and she now lived in Holland, our first port of call. She was used to driving on the right-hand side of the road, spoke fluent Dutch and German, and had friends near Copenhagen. I told her about the trip, and she was already busy digging up traditional Dutch folktales, exploring the history of skating races, and finding out whether sailing barges could be hired for a few days. She was quite obviously the best possible person to come, and a keen wind surfer to boot. She had only one reservation— Born four months after our Norfolk trip, her first baby Sarah would be just eleven months old in May. How would she take to life on the open road? At seven and a half months, she is incredibly sleepy, Jane wrote in February. I suppose it's because she's trying so hard to walk and crawl. That sounded fine, but three months is a long time in a baby's life. I tried to recall what one-year-olds were like. From what I remembered, it was a flexible, easy-going age. Jane's letter continued. 
Please think if you can cope with Sarah, too. She is a little wakeful at night. I would love to come, but I'd hate to be more of a burden than a help. I consulted the girls. They all thought that having a baby aboard would be fun, especially Susie, who had never had a little sister to practice on. I couldn't think of any plans which would exclude a baby. While Jane was with us, I would sleep in the cab, giving her and Tilly the big berth. Ideally, Sarah would sleep in a basket on the floor, but she could always cuddle in with Jane. Tilly was a little dubious. What if Sarah cries in the night? She'll wake us all up anyway if she cries in the night, said Daisy practically. On a high note of optimism, I discounted such remarks and wrote back to Jane, describing Bertha's comforts and conveniences and assuring her that we could cope with Sarah. We had one other traveling companion. By April 1st, I had done enough research to be reasonably well-informed on the obscurer aspects of the books and authors we were to pursue. One writer above all the rest had emerged as vivid, urgent, and demanding. At first, I didn't even particularly like him, but like a doppelganger, he kept turning up at my shoulder in the most unlikely places, always with a question. Ugly, unsettled, an embarrassment to many of his friends, and yet the most obsessively read and reread of all European storytellers, Hans Christian Andersen, haunted me as effectively as the traveling companion of his own macabre story. There was no confining him to his Danish birthplace, Odense, and to Copenhagen. After we returned, I discovered that our journey had shadowed his travels even more than I originally bargained for. Like us, he admired the dikes that dried out Harlem, stared out at Sweden from Hamlet's Elsinore, and tramped along the beaches of Jutland. He visited the Grimm brothers in Germany, but he too was turned away from their door. In Venice, he had been fascinated by the silence of gondolas gliding along moonlit canals. He stayed with the mad King Ludwig's parents in the fairy tale castle of Hohenschwangau, and he had even stared down at the bears in Mary Plain's bear pit in Bern. In Paris, he dined with Alexandre Dumas and climbed Notre Dame with a copy of Hugo's Hunchback in his hand. A painfully nervous narcissist, a compulsive traveler, he never rested long anywhere. He drank up his welcomes with a thirst that showed he never quite believed in them, then flitted away before he saw them vanish. I began to realize on reading his autobiography, significantly called The Fairy Tale of My Life, and substantially altered in the five or six different versions of it he wrote, that almost all his stories had a personal element in them. None more so than the ugly duckling, the misunderstood little bird who became the swan of Denmark. But the sequel was not the simple triumph, public fame, and recognition of that story. It was the life sentence adrift that is the true lot of the wild swan, hauntingly described in his picture book without pictures. 28th Evening It was a dead calm, said the moon. The water was as transparent as the pure air that I was traversing. I could see the curious plants down under the water. They were like giant forest trees stretching toward me, many fathoms long. 
The fish swam over the tops. A flock of wild swans were flying past high up in the air. One of them sank with outspread wings lower and lower. It followed with its eyes the aerial caravan as the distance between them rapidly increased. It held its wings outspread and motionless and sank as a soap bubble sinks in the quiet air. When it touched the surface of the water, it bent its head back between its wings and lay as still as the white lotus blossom on a tranquil lake. A gentle breeze rose and swelled the glittering surface of the broad billows. The swan lifted its head, and the sparkling water dashed over its back and breast like blue flames. Dawn shed its rosy light around, and the swan soared aloft with renewed vigor toward the rising sun, toward the faint blue coastline, whither the aerial caravan took its flight. But it flew alone with longing in its breast. Solitary it flew over the swelling blue waters. At last I put my finger on what worried me most about Hans Andersen. It was his unquiet soul, unwilling to rest in his grave because he felt himself, with some justice, widely misunderstood and underestimated, doomed forever to be labeled a children's writer. He wrote over a hundred and fifty tales, yet today few people know more than a dozen of them. Not one of his novels is in print. Yet when the very first of his tales, The Tinderbox, was published, a critic advised him not to write any others, because although he personally had nothing against fairy stories for adults, he thought children ought to be offered books with a higher purpose than mere entertainment. No one will allege that a child's proper sense of dignity will be stimulated by reading of a princess who, in her sleep, rides off on a dog's back to a soldier who kisses her. Anderson himself knew exactly what he was doing. I look into myself, find the idea for older people, and tell it as if to the children, but remembering that father and mother are listening. Two months before his death, he was faced with what seemed to him the bitterest of evidence that father and mother were no longer listening. To do him honor, it was proposed on his 70th birthday that a statue of him should be put up in the famous King's Garden in Copenhagen. But August Schobe, the sculptor commissioned to make it, proposed having a young boy leaning against him and listening. Enraged, Anderson wrote to a friend, Schobe came to see me again last night. My blood was boiling, and I spoke clearly and unambiguously saying that none of the sculptors knew me, that nothing in their attempts indicated that they had seen or realized the characteristic thing about me, that I could never read aloud if anyone was sitting behind me or leaning up toward me, and even less so if I had children sitting on my lap or young Copenhagen boys leaning up against me, and that it was only a manner of speaking when I was referred to as the children's writer." My aim was to be a writer for all ages, and so children could not represent me. The naive element is only part of my fairy tales. Adult humor is their salt. My written language is not childish, but based on popular speech. That is my Danishness. Was this just wishful thinking? Or has Anderson been unfairly banished to the nursery? 
He has been translated into almost every language under the sun, but very few indeed of those translations make any serious attempt to convey the deadpan subtleties, the colloquial lilt, the needle-sharp throwaway lines that make his tales so much more than stories for children. Some of them even attempt improvement. In one American version, the little match girl is befriended and brought up by a generous family instead of joining her grandmother in heaven. But what could we do to right this wrong if it was a wrong? Could people be persuaded to take Anderson more seriously? For the moment, I contented myself with including the best available English translations in my traveling library, along with a copy of his autobiography and his Romantic Rambles in the Hearts Mountains. By March, the first itinerary had been savagely pruned. There was to be no trekking across the Norwegian glaciers in search of trolls, no pacing out of the marathon, no ambling the Spanish plains on latter-day Rosinantes in Don Quixote's footsteps. If we were to have only seven weeks, it was better to take a neat circular route round Europe, Holland, Denmark, Germany, Italy, Switzerland, and France, and it seemed wise to include some up-to-date amusements for the girls as well as researching into the background of the classics of children's literature we planned to pursue, I had asked for lists of fun parks and children's attractions from all the tourist offices. I admit that there was an element of low cunning in making the legendary Dutch fantasy world of Duinrel our first stop, but it seemed a good idea to make the children's first taste of Europe an extravagantly memorable one. They were not, after all, storybook children, and their enjoyment, or lack of it, could make or break the journey. How four such different characters were going to get on in such close quarters, I was still unsure. Tilly at twelve had an adult understanding, and was impatient of babies. Daisy, individual and unpredictable, had a streak of the solitary. Ellen, once known as the electric baby, was incapable of staying still for long. Susanna relied too much on the privileged position of the undisplaced youngest. And what about me? How could I manage unremitting motherhood at such close quarters when my normal impulse was to retreat as much as possible from the children? I still hadn't found my balance on a seesaw of guilt over neglecting the girls while I was working and anxiety over influencing them unduly while I was with them. I loved solitary journeys, and had always used them as voyages of discovery, flights of fantasy, and escapes from responsibility. What would it be like dragging along those responsibilities as baggage? A few days before our May Day departure date, Bertha was delivered. Although it was only five o'clock, Ellie and Susie instantly put on their pajamas and climbed into the upper berth to practice going to bed. I looked around the tiny interior and tried to imagine how six people and a baby were going to live in a space this size. Where would all the clothes go? What food should I take? We needed inspiration. Perhaps it was time to christen Bertha. Tom brought out a whiskey bottle, and we sat and stayed at the table looking out of the picture window and trying to imagine the next few weeks. Passing neighbors, large and small, stopped to inspect our new home. The small ones disappeared aloft with much giggling, and the large ones joined us at the table. They drank to the success of the trip. We drank up the advice they gave us. 
plug them all into Walkman's. Matthew was no trouble at all in Italy last year. He just sat at the table in the restaurant in his headphones and didn't say a word. The van'll need servicing by the time you get to Italy. I know a wonderful garage near Monte Cassini. When I broke down in the Dolomites... Don't linger in Switzerland. They despise people with large families. We can give you the address of our friends in Venice. They'll show you everything. I wasn't sure that I wanted to be too forewarned. A shade morose, I left Tom to learn from their experience and began to trek backwards and forwards from house to van with armfuls of clothes, shoes, swimsuits, spare specks, knit lotion, horlicks, and other necessaries. I was as impatient as the children to be off. The travelers' tales grew more lurid on the horrors of travel in general and with children in particular. As if an illustrative counterpoint, the rough-and-tumble upstairs suddenly turned into a landslide. There must have been a detectable weariness in the way I picked up the small bruised bodies and dispatched them inside for fish fingers. Social antennae twitched. The van emptied. Left alone, everything seemed possible. Over the next day or two, I stowed an unbelievable amount of gear. By the evening before our departure, Bertha had swallowed up tents, tennis rackets, five sets of waterproofs, approximately 40 shoes of one sort or another, and food for the first few days. There is no furniture so charming as books, somebody once said, and on the way back from Malvern, we had stopped in the small market towns that fringe the A44 and gutted the second-hand bookshops of their cheap children's paperbacks. We also found as many as possible of the old Everyman's Library editions of the classic children's stories we were aiming to track down, as these were usually unabridged and often still had the original illustrations. Once I had stuffed the ledge that ran all round the van under the lockers three deep with paperbacks, Bertha's natural coziness acquired a cultured aspect. Pinocchio peeped out behind Heidi. Hans Brinker and the Silver Skates flanked Grimm's fairy tales. The three musketeers jostled William Tell. Tapes fitted neatly above the tape recorder. Heavier literary reference books stood on the shelf below it. There was space under the driver's seat for more of these and for guidebooks. Four new skipping ropes hung invitingly beside the back door, useful for exercise in inner cities. Under the passenger seat, I laid down a small cellar of beer, wine, and whiskey. Just as I was relaxing complacently, the girls came out with their own last-minute inspirations. Tilly had fifteen stuffed animals. Daisy carried a synthesizer. Ellie aimed her bike hopefully up the steps, and Susie was puffing under the weight of a very large suitcase containing every single piece of clothing she'd ever inherited from her three sisters. That was only the first load. Tense negotiations began, involving rash promises from me about pretty summer numbers we would buy from foreign chain stores, and tearful concessions from them. At last, each pushed a best-loved object into her sleeping bag, and we retreated indoors for our last night home. Twenty-four hours later, we turned off on the A-12 and groped our way through a maze of neon signs to Parkstone Quay. In the darkness, the maw of the Harwich Car Ferry gaped as widely as the giant dogfish who swallows Pinocchio. 
Ellie and Susie were frankly dubious about the ship's viability, nor were they convinced of the wisdom of a night crossing. If the front can open up like that, why doesn't it leak? What if there's a great storm and it sinks? What if we don't wake up in time and it takes us back to England again? I was in no mood for patient and comforting explanations. Clutching boarding cards and cabin reservations and stifling a private panic that had been growing stronger all day, I was concentrating on steering Bertha over the boarding ramp and into the ridiculously tiny niche that a trusting sailor was confident she could occupy. It was Tilly and Daisy who had to reassure their sisters as best they could. Not that they were entirely sure themselves that the great iron shell would really float. We locked up the van and set out to explore the ship and find our cabin. The fairy guide had advertised a disco and a cinema, so the girls were clutching glad rags as well as night things. I had to admire their spirit, but my own energy reserve was extremely low. It had been an eventful day. An early farewell breakfast with Tom, a birthday lunch in Regent's Park with Daisy's and Tilly's godparents, a long afternoon hopelessly lost in the East End traffic with only maps of Europe to guide us, supper time trying out the skipping ropes in Stoke by Nayland, when a sleek cabin steward nonchalantly told us there was no disco out of season and that the film had an 18 certificate, the neatly made-up little bunks seemed an irresistibly attractive option. The girls agreed. We drank a Coke at the rail as the Princess Beatrix pulled away from the quayside, watched the black water close behind her, then ducked below. The journey had begun in earnest. Well, we are well and truly underway, aren't we? On a ferry, headed for Holland, all the anxieties right out there for us to see. And I really could relate to a lot of this. The whole idea that the parents were kind of trapped into the service of the school system. I'd never really looked at it that way, but every parent these days in America and I would say in England, I guess, based on how this was written, knows that the schools just kind of get your kids in there and then you're kind of just keeping up to see what needs to be done next. Pick them up, drop them off, participate in this, do things for that. And it really makes you kind of empathize with the homeschooling parents a little, which is now much more of a movement than it used to be when my kids were little and in school. Back then, it was still more of a curiosity in terms of what you could teach your children yourselves and uh, who has the patience for that, because I didn't. I really also understood her feelings, which I felt she was very brave to put out there in a way. And maybe that's more of the 88 sensibilities than the 2014 sensibilities. That idea that, you know, I kind of like escaping from my kids, but I also like being with them. And how do I let them be themselves without pushing too much of myself on it? I think that's a very modern way to think, and it's not necessarily a bad way to think. But it is that conflict that lives in a lot of parents' heads. I understand. The good news is, if it's like my family, it all worked out, and we all love each other, and everything is great. And that is no fairy tale. <laughs> 
I really kind of enjoyed the section on Hans Christian Andersen, especially the mention of the tinderbox. I can never remember the name of that story, but it is my absolute favorite Hans Christian Andersen story. And you don't hear it mentioned much with the dogs with the eyes as big as cartwheels. And um, if you haven't come across it, definitely look for it. It's an enchanting story for me. I went and looked up Horlicks, H-O-R-L-I-C-K-S. I'd never heard of it. Somehow I had it connected with malted milk balls. Turns out I was kind of close. It is associated with malted milk. It's some kind of an energy drink or nutrition drink, I think is the late 1800s is when it was invented. And um, now it comes in flavors. So it made me think of something like Ovaltine, which is not a thing now in this country, but I could see it being kind of a a warm, soothing beverage. <laughs> I have no idea. Maybe somebody can tell us. <laughs> Why would you take this drink with you? I mean, I like malted milk, and my husband loves it. Now, my husband's family lived in England for a few years due to his father's job, and I can't believe as much as my husband loves malted milk, he hasn't come across this. But when I asked him, he said he'd seen the name, but when I was describing it, he said, oh, Bovril is the kind of drink that they came across that was like that. That's all he said. He didn't say if he liked it or hated it or anything, so I guess it wasn't a huge favorite. Anyway, so that's your bit of British culture for this episode, aside from the whole chapter itself, which is loaded with British culture, because it's British. Next, we will enter Holland, and it will be amazing, because the whole book is amazing. Many, many thanks to Christina Hardiment for allowing me to read this, and she was wondering if she should put it up on Amazon as an ebook, and I'm once again going to say, please do, otherwise people are going to have to get it from used bookstores the way I did. All right, other news. Christmas is coming. Thanksgiving is done. It was a wonderful Thanksgiving. Oh my gosh, we only had a couple people. Hannah came over and her friend, Kirsten, who is like an adopted daughter in our household. But we had a wonderful time. It was beautiful weather. Oh my gosh. Just what you think of as the perfect fall weather, at least in this part of the country. Crisp, just a bit chilly. The leaves were starting to turn. The sky is that deep blue. Oh man, we took the dogs for a walk. We had lots of turkey and mashed potatoes and cranberry sauce and all that stuff. And then we watched the cowboys who broke my heart again by playing one of the worst games ever as the man said at the deli the next day when I stopped by to do a little regular shopping they need to wake up yes that's how much we all love the cowboys we all talk about them at the grocery store Ugh. even when they're breaking your heart all right Let's talk about something else to do with Christmas besides Thanksgiving kicking the shopping season off because guess what? I'm not at Black Friday. I'm here recording this. This is much more fun than standing in line and arguing with people and uh, putting up with those crowds. I'll do my shopping a different way. 
But there are two podcasts, which I mention every year, and they're back again. The Christmas Stocking Podcast has gone on for many years, and these episodes are, oh gosh, never that long, 10 to 15 minutes. There's usually a piece of Christmas music in it. There's always a piece of Christmas history or trivia of some sort that turns into a story. Very enjoyable. And then the My Merry Christmas Podcast, which is actually a podcast of these long radio shows that there's some online radio that does Christmas stuff all year round. I'm not a Christmas all year round person, but if you are, you should definitely check this out because they have episodes coming up every so often through the year. But of course, they intensify at this time of year, which is when I start listening. And the one that came out just fairly recently, they may have a new one now, but it was from maybe last month was all about Italian Christmas customs. So that's always fun to listen to that kind of thing. Next week, Scott and I will be discussing one of my favorite books, a desert island book, In This House of Breed by Rumor Godden. If you've been listening for a long time or have gone through my archives, I received permission from the Godden estate to read her book, China Court which is not nearly as well known as in this house of breed, which is an amazing book. China Court is great, really great. And you should go listen to it if you haven't or get it and read it. But I'm really looking forward to talking to Scott about this book at A Good Story is Hard to Find. And that's all I've got. If you know of other Christmas podcasts or recommendations or books that you want to look at in the future or short stories, any of that stuff, you can leave a comment at the blog for the podcast, which is hcforgottenclassics.blogspot.com. You can send me an email, julie at glyphnet, G-L-Y-P-H-N-E-T dot com. You can, of course, leave an iTunes review, which isn't really where you ask for things to be read, but it's certainly where I can appreciate a nice comment. You know, I love those things. So as I said, the weather is wonderful. Our refrigerator is full of Thanksgiving goodies. I'm enjoying having so many days off with nothing specific attached to it now that Thanksgiving is done. Life is good. I hope life is good for you. And I really appreciate you coming by to listen because I wouldn't be reading this out loud and As always, I'm really enjoying it. So thank you very much. Have a great week, everyone. And I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.